Today on Happy Set Confused, Richard E. Grant garnered some of the best reviews in his career for his role in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy Set Confused. As I said, we've got an awards-worthy performance to, to celebrate in the, today's episode of Happy Set Confused with the wonderful sometime character actor, sometime leading man, all-around delightful gentleman, Mr. Richard E. Grant. Uh, Richard E. Grant is is such a charmer, such an amazing body of work, so thrilled that he came on the podcast. As I mentioned, he is currently starring in the new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, which is one of my favorites of the year. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, this is the latest film from uh, director Mario Heller. But she is uh, the filmmaker behind um, Diary of a Teenage Girl, which also garnered great reviews a few years back. And this one stars Melissa McCarthy as uh, a real-life person named Lee Israel, who in the 90s in New York City was uh, a writer of some repute who had to resort to forging uh, literary letters from uh, great luminaries, great writers of the past, in order to make ends meet. Uh, Richard E. Grant stars as one of her good friends, uh, also kind of like a a peripheral fringe, kind of just getting by New Yorker uh, that I certainly took to heart. Uh, all these characters in this film definitely resonated with me as, as a lifelong New Yorker, as someone that appreciates all the unique characters and stories that come out of this city. Uh, this is a, a, great, a great film full of uh, drama and comedy and um, well worth your time. And I hope, I hope this one does get through and get into award season. I, I could see Melissa and Richard getting some uh, justifiable attention for this. So fingers crossed on that. That's the main event. Richard E. Grant on the podcast uh, this week. Uh, other things to note, uh, we are returning with a whole new batch of After Hours episodes on Comedy Central. So each Thursday, we, we, we're dropping a new one. And, you know, we, we, we started off with a, a nice little batch that included Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell and Joe Manganiello and uh, Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish. If you haven't seen any of those sketches, please uh, go to Comedy Central's YouTube page or the After Hours uh, Facebook page. Uh, subscribe to that and you can check out all those great sketches that we've done. And as I said, there's some new ones coming up with some familiar folks to listeners of the podcast, followers of my work. You will not be disappointed. Some A-level amazing guests that um, were awesome. So anyway, starting this Thursday, uh, November 1st, uh, there'll be a nice little new run every Thursday on Comedy Central's Facebook page and After Hours' Facebook page and my social media. You won't be able to miss it. So keep an eye out for that. Um, in addition, I want to mention uh, there's a great new documentary that is going to be in select theaters November 2nd. I believe it's also uh, going to be like on demand and different services like that. It's called In Search of Greatness. Uh, if you're a sports fan, if you're, if you're a casual fan or a diehard sports fan, I think this is going to be a, a film that really resonates with you. It's uh, from Gabe Polsky. He directed a great documentary a couple years back called Red Army. And this one kind of tackles with the great question of like what makes an athlete great and, and not even what makes an athlete great, but what makes the greatest ones um, special. Uh, and it's, it's primarily framed around three interviews with three of the greatest athletes of our times, Jerry Rice, Pele, and Wayne Gretzky. 
Uh, and I, I really enjoyed the conversations, but also the filmmaking treatment of the subject matter. Uh, it's well worth your time. Check it out. Look up uh, InSearchOfGreatness.com to find out what theater it's playing in or, or where you can check it out. I highly recommend it. Uh, and that about that wraps it up. brings you up to speed on all things in the, the Josh Horowitz universe. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Richard E. Grant. It's uh, he, He's just wall-to-wall charm, and it was just fantastic. One small note there, uh, we had a little bit of an audio glitch. Um, I think it came two-thirds of the way through or something. So basically what happened was my primary uh, audio recorder uh, had an issue. Uh, It stopped working. Thankfully, I almost always am recording it on a backup. The backup audio is not as great. It's literally like an iPhone audio. So the last 10, 15 minutes of this might not be up to the standards that I try to keep the audio at. So still totally listenable to, uh, but just be aware it's not your ears going. You're not going crazy. The last 10, 15 minutes might not sound as great as the first 30 minutes. So anyway, that being said, please enjoy this conversation conversation with Richard E. Grant and enjoy his new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, which is now playing. I am such an admirer of your work, sir. I'm so glad that this movie has come around to give me an, an excuse to have you into my silly office. It's good to Thank see you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love your office. Thank you, sir. E.T. in the corner and there's, there's, these pictures. and yeah, It's fantastic. There's a lot of stimulation here. If you get bored of me, you can just look around. Yeah, fan geeky stuff. I love that. Yes. Yeah, it's like my house. As so these are all the previous these victims you've had, are Most they? Most people have been here uh, that are on this wall. This is actually New Yorkers. This right. Is, these are um, for inspiration for... Some of the silly things I do uh, on occasion for Comedy Central, I do sketches. So this is inspiration. Oh, you know who would be great for a sketch? Alexander Skarsgård is a New Yorker, etc. Uh-huh. So that's... Uh, so you have to be a New Yorker to qualify to get on the board? Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. You qualify. Sienna Miller, she's not a New Yorker. She lives in London, doesn't well, she? Maybe she's bi-countryal. Okay. Bi-city. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, you qualified as a New Yorker last year. You shot this here, didn't you? Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. In January. 28 days. Five and a half weeks. Crazy. Okay, well, we're going to get into to all of that. I, I absolutely adore this movie. Um, first of all, c- congratulations again. I mean, I, I, I first I, I met you very briefly at the Toronto Film Festival mm-hmm. at one of those like fun little shindig I parties. Uh, I, ran, I don't know if you could tell. I ran away when... It was you and Melissa. I believe your daughter was there. Yeah. And then uh, Sissy Spacek came in and yes. like, a, a little dance party started to ensue. And I was just like, this is too much for my small brain to handle, Richard. I have to leave. Well, that's how I feel. And I don't know, I have a small brain like you, but it's, yeah, it's surreal when you meet, when you meet people that you have uh, firstly working with Melissa McCarthy or admire for so, so, such a long time. And then, you know, as you say at the festival, meeting Sissy Spacek, just you know, trolling into a party. It's not what you, ex- what, what do I expect to see? Yeah, you know? well, that's part of what I appreciate, you know, having, I certainly know your work quite well, but also like having this opportunity to kind of read up on you a bit is my sense is you are, you know, there, I feel like there are two kind of categories of actors out there, yeah. uh, 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 practitioners in the business, those that are kind of a little bit aloof, kind of separate themselves from the trappings of it. Name them. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that list over here. Do you, okay. th- are you being facetious, or do you think that most are, are not? No, most no, no. no. I'm, I'm very intrigued by your your division between the two types. Well, I guess 
I, I think it's actually most people I talk to don't, or maybe they're playing it too cool for school, that, that don't get caught up in the, in the fun that can be associated with this kind of silly business. Um, that can't, that, um, my, my sense is that you like appreciate the film festivals and the, the, the silly parties and the opportunity to, to mingle with the sissy spacek. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been, yeah, I'm, I'm 62 years old and I'm still a starstruck as at my age than I was, you know, a hundred years ago when I started watching movies. And I think that is as much to do with anything as where I grew up in a, you know, a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in, you know, the tiniest country in the Southern Hemisphere in Africa. So I, I still can't really believe that the stuff that has happened to me in my life has happened, you know, which is the reason why I've kept a diary all my life. Um, so I've, I've never, I've never managed to be blasé. I, I met the late great Carrie Fisher 30 years ago right. in LA. And she, she saw me in a chat show in England talking about people that I just worked with on The Player, which tells you how long ago that was, which had an absolutely star-crammed cast of famous people just playing extras. That was Altman's great conceit that he had, you know, Burt Reynolds as Burt Reynolds walking on for one line of dialogue. Right. Um, and she, when I was talking about this on an English TV show and she was filming something there, she, she saw me afterwards and she said you are no longer a tourist, you're one of the attractions. <laughs> Not the main attractions, but one of them. Get a grip and stop being so starstruck. And I said, well, that's easy for you, Carrie, because you were born as exactly. a kind of showbiz royalty. So, you know, but so that has never gone away. I'm still as thrilled now to meet people who are talented as, as I ever was. Surely it goes away, though, when you get down to the work. You can shut that off and... and not be caught yeah. up. Yeah, when you start working together and you get to know that the person is, you know, a perfectly fallible human being, but there's something, I don't know whether you find this, but people that are really talented and it's this in, undefinable, invisible stuff that's in that, that makes you look at one person more than you look at another person, that to me is endlessly intriguing and... Rarely, I've been disappointed by meeting people, and I thought, well, they've never lived up to the expectations that I have of them. Right. Do you have that? I, I, I totally concur. People invariably ask me who are the disappointments, who's the asshole, and I have to say, generally speaking, it's it's one percent. I'm so who's on your one percent list? <laughs> I can't name names, Richard. Why not? <laughs> Because I'm going to probably have them back here to talk about their next project. Oh, I see. So you're a liar. I'm not a liar. No, I, I'm actually... So you're a... just very, very good at covering up the fact that you think they're jerks. Well, here's the thing. So I've often said this, too. Like, you can tell if I am not into someone's project. They can come in and I can appreciate some of their body of work. I'm not into their current project. Where... So what kind of words do you use just that I'm warned? Well, no, no. I, you, you should feel comfortable because I've, I've, I've voluntarily said how much I enjoy Can You Ever Forgive Me. You have, which I, we're very grateful. Oh, I, and I would never do that for something I, I don't enjoy. I would simply say congratulations on the film and uh -huh. move on. Then move on. There's, there's, there's well, a coding to it. You, you know when you go to a press thing and they say, describe the plot, describe the character, what are your plans for the summer? And you're out of there. <laughs> and you go backstage and you see people and you go, that was something. Yeah, that, you, was, that was really something. You definitely you know. achieved something. Something happened. Yeah. <laughs> you just go, you hope that that's going to be... <laughs> The well, sort of cover that you're going to be able to get out of there you alive. You can probably tell from like listening to these conversations if you do a percentage of like how much of the conversation is spent on the actual project by how much I enjoy the project. Right. That being said, there's so much more beyond this project I want to talk to you about. So don't judge the percentage necessarily this time. Okay, I'm not judging. Okay. 
Um, what were we talking about? Oh, so who? Okay, so growing up um, in Swaziland, yeah. Um, who were so? I know Barbara Streisand was a big um, movie star crush. Kind of there, early there on, were right? two. Yeah, I had an absolute huge and as a lifelong crush on her, and I met her four times. Um, and the other person that I was inspired by was Donald Sutherland because he was very tall. He'd come from you know he didn't grow up in the middle of L.A. or this imagined dream that I had that, you know, all movie stars produced at Hollywood's high school. Um, <laughs> that's Carrie Fisher's life. Exactly. That's Carrie's <laughs> life. Um, and because he had such a long face and such an oddball personality mm. in MASH and Kelly's Heroes of the films that I'd first seen him in, when people said, oh, well, you can't be an actor, I had no notion that I ever might end up in a movie or two. Um, but they said, you know, as a theatre actor, you, you're never going to be able to... You know, who, who are the role models? You have to look like Paul Newman or Robert Redford at that time. And I said, well, you know, there is Donald Sutherland. And they kind of went, yeah, well, you know, Donald Sutherland, he's a freak. So I thought, well, okay, at least there's somebody. Right. He was a guy that I could I could follow. So right. he was an inspiration to me. Who was the first uh, of that ilk that you worked with that you, that you encountered in your life? Uh, the first famous person I met. Goodness me. Um... I oh I was I did a film called Warlock, <laughs> produced by the late great Arnold Culperson, who just died last right, week, right, and um, Julian Sands, an English actor who was in the movie as well, was friends or is friends with Jodie Foster, and I'd been in this film with Nell and I that she had seen, and so we were at the Hollywood uh, at the um, farmers market in near Fairfax sure. you know, in L.A. Los Angeles, yeah, and. Sorry, you're so afraid with everything. And so I went to... Uh, he said, oh, come and have lunch. Come and have lunch with a friend of mine. So I did. And I didn't quite expect to see Jodie Foster in a tracksuit eating food out of a Tupperware box and blowing smoke up my, you know, fundament, saying how much she'd enjoy this movie. That was a completely surreal moment for me. So, yeah, I suppose Jodie Foster was my first... You know, I'd, again, I'd like meeting Sissy Basic when... I had seen her in movies since she was, you know, Bugsy Malone, 12 years old, to Taxi Driver, to all sure. of those things. And somewhere in my head, I thought that she must be, she must either live in a glass house or be 205 years old. Of course, <laughs> she did neither. Um, and so, she was very funny, which I didn't expect either. Yeah. So, so this was post, obviously, with Nell and I, which, of course, was your film debut. Mm -hmm. um, so you were saying like you never imagined that you'd have a, a film career like uh, outside of Donald Sutherland or work. No, like the because I tell you, when when I graduated from uh, college and uh, theatre training um, school, the you get taken in by well, the professor of the the academies takes you in for a final assessment for about fifteen to twenty minutes, giving your career prospects, <laughs> and he said to me. You know, you obviously have a talent for directing. You've directed lots of plays while you've been here. That's really, I think, where your future lies. And I said, what about acting? And he said, well, you know, I have to put my cards on the table. He said, you look weird. You have a very long face. Um, I think you're very light. You know, I just, he just, he said, I think realistically, you should pursue the other thing. So <laughs> I think it's in radio. Really, yeah, and then, you know, some years later when I finally got the, the, my first movie in 1986 with an ally, all the reviews that I can remember reading, that what I remember about them was they said lantern-jawed, funeral-faced, 
uh, you know, face like a tombstone, face like a monster, all of that stuff. So I thought, well, he was right about all that. Um, <laughs> what he wasn't right about is that I actually got a job in a movie and in the theatre. So I'm glad I proved him wrong in that way. But he was right about what I looked like. <laughs> how, how discombobulating was that whole experience? And Because, like, I, with Nail and I, forgive me, I don't remember, I was too young to remember sort of, like, America's appreciation and how quickly that came. Like, was that an immediate thing, that it was a global appreciated film? No, no, not at all. It came, I think it showed at the Carnegie Cinema, as existed then, um, which now is gone. It opened, I think, in in two theatres in New York and L.A. Um, and in London, it ran for about four weeks in a, in a movie house and didn't get particularly good reviews. And then it had it, it got this cult following from students watching it on video VHS first and then DVD and, uh, and streaming it. So right. it's become sort of rites of passage college thing that happens in England. And I don't know if it happens anywhere else, but I, I'm very aware of it in England because I get tweeted or Instagrammed or messaged about it on a daily basis. And I've used public transport all the time on the bus or the subway, the tube, as it's called in England. And there's not a day goes by that somebody somewhere doesn't quote or shout out a line from that movie to me. And of course, to the 99.99% of the population that have never seen it or me. They think, <laughs> they what think the there's a crazy hell? person heckling Ex- you? <laughs> exactly. But I can usually spot them because there's a right. there's a kind of type of person that likes that kind of movie. A good type of person, I would exactly, say. Exactly, yeah. I'm not, the same tribe. <laughs> not many warlock quotes are coming at you on the tube, I assume. Not so far. No, I've not, not had warlocks, but, you know. That's a very particular type of person. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... So in the in the way and I sit in no judgment no, of anybody because no. you know I've geeked out on people and I've gone how the hell do you like that person so I understand this this phenomenon of investing a movie or an actor with more than maybe they should have well and it also it, as you well know it, it depends on where it hits you in your, in your own life like yeah. uh, for, for me like I, my my heart sang a little bit Richard when I was reading and you basically said as great I mean I'm a with Noah and I fan but you mentioned Hudson Hawk and was basically like if you're a fan of Hudson Hawk like the opposite I don't quite get you or well or how old were you when you saw this movie well, so when did it come out uh, 1991 1991 so I was 15 okay was all I too is old? forgiven okay no <laughs> Either that or you want intravenous drugs or both. Oh, there was that. I didn't mention that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know that your brain... How old are you now? I'm 42. Okay. Could you watch it at 42 with the same whatever you experienced when you were 15? I don't think so. If they hook up the same IVs and whatever, perhaps. Okay. Who knows? All right. Okay. Um, I rest my case. <laughs> Which of your films... Um, you mentioned your, you've kept a diary since you were a young boy, right? Yeah. Uh, you still do, it sounds like? I do, yeah. Um, which of the productions of your films would make the best movie? What was the most eventful production of a film that would actually turn into a, a great saga? For oh, hands story? down, Hudson Hawk. <laughs> Hudson Hawk. <laughs> it was so off the chart insane. The whole, the whole, just everything about it, what we began shooting and what the script looked like at the beginning to what we actually ended up doing was... It was a unique experience. <laughs> I'm going to say that. It was something. What it point, was at, something. At what point did you realize it was going off the rails? Was there a particular moment? I mean, was there... Uh, when you see... You know, in those days, you still got a script in paper form. Right. And when you have a script that arrives that is all white pages... Right. 
And when within a very short space of time, there is every colour in the Crayola box. The united colours of Benetton are in the strip. You know that many, many paws have been scrabbling to change the pages. So you know that it's, it's, uh, it's a clusterfuck. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. Am I allowed to say that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I, well, I was at the, your New York premiere the other day, and Sandra Bernhardt was there. Your old yes, buddy. Yes, I know. We've said <laughs> great friends. You see, that's the benefit of doing a movie, even if it tanks. Uh, you, the the good thing that came out of that is that Sandra and I, who played husband and wife, the Mayflowers, <laughs> who were running the world and then got emoliated in molten, molten gold, um, as you do, <laughs> as one does. Yeah. And originally, my character was going to die. Driving through the Kremlin in a 1950s converted um, Cadillac, having a fight through a um, what do they call those roof things that you open? Oh, the convertible, like the um, in a car. Desktop, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. We Br- Br- Bruce Willis and I were going to be having a fist fight in that, going through the Kremlin, and a statue of Lenin was going to fall on the car and kill me. Uh, you know, that's something that I signed up for <laughs> gladly. <laughs> As it was, I just got. You know, molten gold in some shabby studio in the middle of Hungary. So um, I'm glad you're enjoying it because it was torture to do. We can't <laughs> laugh at it 25 years later. Exactly, but we, I've, Sandra and I have stayed uh, great friends. Yeah, and you've got a great friendship yeah. out of it. There's Bruce a- Willis hasn't called me for another gig, huh. so, you know, <laughs> go figure that one. Well, he, he could probably be the answer to one of the earlier questions you asked of me, uh, but I'll let people figure that out. Okay. Uh, um, so You mean he's a one percenter? He might be. Okay. He might be. He's, he's a, he, I mean, this is not speaking out of school. He's a tough, he's a tough cookie for, I think, uh, filmmakers sometimes and for people on my side of the, the, the pond. Okay. Okay. <laughs> See, you baited me in, and now I've revealed too much, and I look like the jerk. Damn you, Richard. Yes, but you, bastard face, you can edit all of this stuff no. out and make me look like a complete crud. Okay. We'll see. I don't have that kind of time. No, I think um, you do. Uh, a few other films I do want to mention before we get back to Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, because, again, these hit me at the right time, and I think they stand up, unlike Hudson Hawk. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, I... I Positively adore a uh, unique opportunity to work with the great Francis Ford Coppola. Absolutely extraordinary experience. Yeah. Um, and I would think I, I always talk to the actors that have worked with him. Like I would think part of the unique uh, uniqueness of working with him is just hanging out in his estate for a few weeks, just improvising or, or rehearsing. And... He does. He did this extraordinary thing. He invited all of us to go to his Napa Valley estate for about two and a half weeks of rehearsals yeah. before we started Dracula. While they were still writing, rewriting the script and doing a formal read-through and doing bonding exercises, some of which involved going up on a hot air balloon because he thought Carrie Elwes and um, various of us would be would be bonded as people going up there. And we were all... It was That was surreal, you know, going on a trampoline every day and playing croquet and games say, with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. And did you go up in a hot air balloon with Tom Waits? I can't think of anything more terrifying in a way. He didn't do it. He was the one person that didn't take, partake in all these activities. Okay. But um, because I think he was touring, so he wasn't in on any of those rehearsals. But he's not a trained actor. Right. But he is the best and most inventive improviser I have ever had the privilege of working with. And many of your scenes, obviously, were with Tom. Yeah, he was absolutely extraordinary. And um, and he did an English accent, and we were stuck in a padded cell. He played Renfield, and I really loved working with him. And I've never seen him since. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, he was absolutely amazing. But you know, it's, talk about Francis Ford Coppola. He works... 
I said, you know, you seem to work almost like a circus ringmaster with many, many people. And he said, well, put it like this. I can't cook for two people. I cook for 30. Um, And that is essentially the metaphor for how he operated, that there were kids, children, dogs, visitors on the set every, every other day. He would play music to get people in the mood of what the scene was. So you felt that he was... He started whipping everybody into action, as yeah. opposed to, in complete contrast, who I worked with a director immediately after Dracula was finished, Martin Scorsese on Age yeah, of Innocence, right who works in monastic silence. And whether it was to do with... I wonder if it was that material in particular. Material playing these upper class yeah. you know, New Yorkers. But Michael Bauhaus, the late Michael Bauhaus right. cinematographer who'd done Dracula and then did Age of Innocence straight afterwards, I said to him, you've worked with... Mr. Scorsese, Mr. Scorsese before, how has it been on his other things? He said, oh, yeah, it's always really quiet like huh. this. It's almost at a whisper. So it's... F- uh, you're like tr- you're tiptoeing through a museum rather than, I mean, so less enjoyable, but I mean, that product, I, I love that film. I mean, that's another one, honestly, that is... Right. I, I well, I know I, I, I'm much more social and noisy, so as you can tell. So I, I prefer the, <laughs> the Coppola Circus as opposed to the Scorsese Silence. Well, I'm, cu- I'm curious, like, back to Dracula for a second, something about that production, I don't know if it was a top-down thing from Francis or from Gary Oldman, but mm-hmm. like... Something about the style and approach, several actors, like, they're going for broke in, in the best possible way. I think of Tom Waits, I think of Hopkins, I think of Oldman. Yeah. There was something about that production where it, it I feel like there was a, a license to go a little bigger. Exactly right. Because the production design um, and the costumes by that extraordinary oh, yeah. Japanese she um passed away a couple of years ago, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, it gave you, you felt that the scale of it was, was operatic mm. and... Coppola certainly wanted things on a large scale. There was right. nothing, there was nothing apologetic or, you know, in particularly Mike Lee about it. It was the opposite of that. Right. So, yeah. Did, in contrast, you've worked several times with uh, the late great Robert Altman. Yeah, um, and he seemed to be a wholly unique uh, filmmaker. I feel like I've never heard others, other filmmakers, even. Approach. I mean, like, I know P.T. Anderson considers himself a disciple of Altman, but I think of his, him as a little bit more stylistically minded. Yeah, um, I agree. What What was the, the appeal? How did you How did you gel with with Robert Altman? He works. He worked in, and I miss him enormously. There's not a day goes by I don't think of what a loss it is that we don't have him directing any more films. And I'm just privileged that I got to work on three of his films, even if one of them, Pret a Porte, Stroke, Ready to Wear, as it was called here, was you know. A flop, mm. but the way he works is is very democratic, and it feels like you're back being a theatre company because there are two tiers of salaries. So that even if you're Julia Roberts or Sophia Loren, um, they may get a higher amount of money, and you may be on a slightly, a slightly lower rung. But you know that nobody's in there making big bucks. Right. So that means that the whole hierarchy and pyramid of star at the top and then people down in the mudflats below um, is completely dispensed with. So so in the makeup tent, for for instance, you would have to stand in line behind, you know, five famous people that were being painted and decorated and, you know, wigged up ahead of you. And what that means is that he's not spending any money on big Winnebago's or... um, 
entourages of people. He dispenses with all of that, and right. it's about making the movie because he didn't have the budgets for them, and he had no interest in that. Right. And the other thing that he did, which was unique in, in my experience, is he invited everybody to see the dailies or the rushes, whatever you call them, um, in the evening or at the weekend, and he always had a party on a Sunday night. He always had a joint at the end of the day of work, and he always employed some musicians, um, stroke actors, so that they would provide the free entertainment at the weekly party so you know it was an absolute blast working for him i just i like and he was very loyal to actors he liked people with long faces who were tall and skinny <laughs> so for me i was like fit of the prototype i was just I, I, I cannot tell you how much I, I loved working for that man. Well, it, he used he, to call me E. Grant. E. Grant. <laughs> Every time I saw him, I said, hi, Bob. E. Grant. It's hilarious. Well, he fit the two categories. I mean, both that, like, he, he, he could create sounds like an atmosphere, as you said. You were, you're more of, like, the social type. You want to have a social atmosphere on a film. Yeah. And the proof's in the pudding. He could actually, you know, there, I'm sure, sure there are some filmmakers that can have a fun time on a set and not deliver the finished product, but mm-hmm. he was able to do both, which yeah. is a rarity. And the other thing that he did is that he had multiple cameras in the same way that right. he'd have 16 actors, and he really pioneered that way, way back. The wireless um, mics. The, the wireless uh, yeah, mics. Yeah. So you have 16 people, and he'd say, it doesn't matter if you overlap, because in real life, people talk over each other. Yeah. And of course, for some sound editing departments that is the absolute nightmare antithesis of what they how they want to do their job but, for an actor. but f- it means that you never knew whether your character was in close-up or in a wide shot or not even on screen at all so it meant that you have to completely throw yourself into the scene that you're doing and it means that any vanity or you know people worrying about touch-ups or am, am i in my close-up am i phoning this performance in all the stuff that you can I've seen on movies people get corrupted by. They think, well, you know, I've done my close-up. I don't need to bother for right. the other person's coverage. Um, well, and also I would think for an actor, like the moment you check out in any way yeah. from the, the environment you're in mm-hmm. is death. And for some actors, it's tough to key back into that. Yeah. And he created an environment where you're in it all the time or you're not in a Robert Altman film. Exactly. And he always said that he saw... He essentially saw the frame, the envelope frame of a uh, movie screen is that he was as interested in what was going on the left-hand corner and the Mm. right-hand corner as opposed to what was supposed to be the central focus in the middle of the movie. And, of course, that didn't always work. Um, But he never... His curiosity and his passion for movies and interest in people never abated until the day that, you know, he stopped breathing. Um it speaks volumes to the, the breadth of, of material that you've created in, in, in your career that I can go from Robert Altman to Spice World. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, Sensational film. Was that Altman? I can't remember. I'm a little that rusty. It wasn't on. Altman, no. That was an eight-year-old daughter of the person that's speaking to you right now saying, Dad, you've been offered the part of the Spice World's manager. I don't care if you're offered a 10-year Disney contract. She said this at eight. She said, you have to be in the Spice World movie because I want to meet them. And so for, I did an amazing time with them. (laughs) And so for about two terms at school, on the school playground, I was about, I felt like Harrison Ford walking around (laughs) because I was, I was besieged by people. And then of course, what follows is when they, when they hit uh, their teenage years, Mm. there's the shame of them having been Spice World fans. But then it sort of goes goes full circle. So you get them, the people that felt ashamed are now going for the reunion concerts or whatever they can do. So, you know, I can't knock it because 
Adele, you know, we share the same birthday, but on the same bank account or birth year. <laughs> she sought me out and I got tickets to go and see her show because she was a Spice Girls fan. Amazing. You know, who would have thought? Lena Dunham gave me four episodes of Girls because she was a Spice World fan. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, yeah, there's no accounting for anything. And I'm here today, obviously, because you love Hudson Hawk so much. <laughs> you never know. You never... <laughs> Speaking of musical icons, yeah. you've been directed by Madonna. Yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> I've known her through Sandra Bernhardt. Well, I first met her. I went, I went to, I went to Sandra to Madonna's house for Valentine's dinner in 1990. So I've known her some decades and she really pulled a fast one because she called me up and she said, I've written a short 12 to 15 minute film and I want you to play this blind who's dying of AIDS guy who was my dance teacher uh, when I was a teenager and I'd like you to be in this thing called Filth and Wisdom. So... You know, it was for practically no money, a whisper and a fart. So I went and did this. And then she she called me a couple of months later and she said, oh, we just need to do a couple more bits. And then there's another week of shooting. And the next thing, I, I don't hear anything from her at all, tumbleweed. Madonna's 90-minute film <laughs> is at the Berlin Film Festival. And I thought, hmm, how did you manage to stretch that chewing gum out? To that length. Anyway, she did. I didn't get any more money. And I have never seen it, but I have been accosted by people who've said, it's probably one of the worst things I've ever seen. So, you know. The um, bottom line of all of this yeah. is that you're speaking to a total whore. <laughs> I think that's true. what it boils that's down not to. That's true. You know. um, let, let's go full circle. You've brought up to... filth and wisdom. You've brought up Hudson Hawk. And I just, you know, okay. I'm what can I'm I gonna, do? Karmically, I'm going to come around to this wonderful success now. I want to make sure we have time to pay uh, okay. uh, pay uh, homage to this great work that I've seen twice. So can you ever Thank forgive you. me? Um, is this delightful um, kind of character study of a few characters in New York? And I'm, I, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. And, 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 and while this is not my life, these are not my people, I recognize these people very, very well. Oh, good. Um, and I'm curious, like, do you recognize them too? I mean, obviously you didn't, you didn't grow up here, but there's something um, wonderfully charming about the, um, these are survivors. These are desperate survivors. They are. They're <laughs> failing upwards. Yeah. With as much, you know... Gusto is that they can muster. Do you, do you have an affinity for these? I, I think one of the, the tributes of uh, the great accomplishments of what Marianne Heller has done in this film is that mm -hmm. you have such empathy for these characters. Um, they, they, they're not judged. They're not belittled. No. And the, and the sexuality is not... I mean, considering that Melissa McCarthy is playing an incredibly spiky, curmudgeonly yeah. porcupine of a woman who happens to be lesbian. Right. Uh, my character is HIV positive and gay. Dolly Wells um, is playing a, a woman who is dealing with her coming out. Sure. But the, they, what I was so struck by in the way that it was written and the way that it was directed was they're just, that is who those people are. It's, it's not, you don't ever feel that it's on a soapbox or that there's big slushy strings coming out or that Maria Callas is going to be on the soundtrack. Right. It, it's got none of the things that you would kind of usually expect of a movie that is dealing with people who sexual orientation is not heterosexual cinema. Right. If you like. Yeah. 
So that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's not underlined. It's not like yeah. I mean, it's sort of just at a certain point you kind of realize it without even you know. There's not a big coming out speech by Melissa McCarthy's character. No, and I think that Jeff Whitty and Nicole Holof Center's screenplay is so. You, I think that once you understand how and why people do what they do, that Lee Israel fell on hard times in that as a, as a respected biographer, she couldn't, she didn't have the social skill or impulse to schmooze people and become, try and become a Tom Clancy celebrity in her own right, writer. Right. Um, so she subsumed herself into the people that she was writing about. And, you know, her, her interest was in writing a book about Fanny Bryce. And as her agent says, no, he's going to give you 10 bucks to write a book about Fanny Bryce. Right. So that doesn't stop Lee Israel because it's a curmudgeon that she is and, you know, so pig-headed. She goes to a, um, an archive or library or whatever and finds a letter that's in a book, inadvertently, written by Fanny Bryce and then... Sells, steals the letter, sells it, and then realizes that she can earn money by writing postscripts and then impersonating everybody from Louise Brooks, Noel Coward, Lillian Hellman, Marlene Dietrich, uh, Dorothy Parker, up, down, and sideways, and convinces dealers that these are the real things. So, this act of literary ventriloquism, I think, is such an extraordinary thing. And because she did this kind of under the radar, and at her court case, there were four people. Right. Uh, you would think that a scam like this would have got garnered much more publicity than it did, but because she lived her life so invisibly and you're taken into this story via the screenplay in the way that um, Mario Heller has conceived it, that I think, like anything, once you understand why somebody do, does what they do, you, you can't help but root for them or feel yeah. compassion. I'm curious, like, this has been so well-received since, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the film festival circuit. It's getting these amazing reviews, for, in particular for your performance, but also generally for the film. Um, you know, we've talked, like, in jest about sort of the ups and downs, some films that have been extremely well-received in a career, starting yeah. with, with Nell and I, to the Hudson Hawks. Yeah. Like, at this point, are you, do you expect, um, are you a pessimist or optimist? Like, you, I'm sure you felt satisfied, and you certainly, sounds like you enjoyed your time with Marielle and, and Melissa, but when something comes out, are you... Do you protect yourself? Or are you sort of like waiting for the other shoe to drop, or were you expecting this to land the way it has? This is beyond the, the response that it's had is beyond anything that any of us who were involved could possibly have anticipated. Yeah. Because there are no car chases, there are no special effects. It doesn't. On paper, you go. These are how how is this something that you can sell? So. We knew from Telluride a month ago, the film festival where it first launched, having no idea what the response would be, that we heard people laugh a lot and we heard people crying at the end. And then people would come up to us because it's such an intimate festival. You walk around this ski resort that's in the summertime and uh, people who've seen the movie would just you know, come up to you on the ski gondolas or whatever and go, we really felt something. We really love this movie. And you go, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> No, but say, we really love this movie. And that, that sort of tsunami effect has been, went through Toronto and, uh, you know, I've seen Melissa every day on this press junket and we've constantly been saying to each other, when is the bad stuff going to come? Because it just, seriously, it hasn't. Yeah. And if you've been around certainly as long as I have, you know that the chances are that something's going to fall off the 
down the cannula hole and suddenly going to say, I really didn't like it. But that hasn't happened. So where that translates into people, you know, paying money to actually gather their apartments or houses to go and see the thing, you know, that's, yeah. that's the gamble. But we have been astonished by that. I also... You know, praise is an odd thing that every actor that I know, because I think the nature of being an actor is that you have this combination of low self-esteem and large ego. The ego being, you know, give me the job over somebody else. But then when you have got it, you feel that you're not as worthy as somebody else. I always think that everybody else can and could and probably will do a better job than I do. And that's not being disingenuous, it's just, it's just absolutely the nature of it. And I think part of it is that you don't have a job for life. Every job, you're as good as the next one. Yeah. And I've also been in so many things where people have predicted things or said, you know, this sure. is going to do that, this is going to do that. So I just, you know, literally, like addicts, you take it a day at a time. <laughs> and today is a good day, you get a good review or a good response, you go, yeah, it's good for that day. But you know that the next day somebody's going to come around and go, I hate you. <laughs> well, it does feel like, I mean, yeah, from the outside looking in, as far as acting careers go, it feels like a... I mean, again, this is my vantage point. A consistent career. You've worked very, very consistently for ever since with Nail and I. Well, that's the advantage. Well, thank you. But that is the advantage of being a character actor. Right. Because you are... You're you don't have to fit one kind of thing. Your availability you can, yeah. and, yeah. you know, you can slot into things. Yeah. And you're not... There's not a huge risk that somebody's spending a gazillion dollars on whether you're going to sell the movie or not. Right. You know, and I imagine for the handful of people that do have that status and position... It must be a constant worry of like, you know, am I, you know, how, how long can this last? Well, yeah, I mean, again, it speaks to the, the versatility. You're probably the only living uh, human being that has appeared in Girls, Downton Abbey, and Game of Thrones. And now Star Wars. <laughs> now Star Wars. <laughs> you the, where's your Harry Potter and James Bond? That's all I want to know. Exactly. That's what I want to know. Yeah, exactly. Please, get the word out there. It's not a lack of trying. I'm trying to help. Yeah. Um, Star Wars, I, 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 I talked to you a little bit about our mutual love of JJ when I saw you at the Toronto mm -hmm. party. Yeah, I remember. Um, so this has been an enjoyable experience, I think, just uh, I would assume uh, mixing it up with this genius that is J.J. Abrams. Yeah, extraordinary. Because, you know, again, there, there's a situation where I would have thought the amount of success that he has and the amount of money that he has accrued, I don't know how much precisely, but you know, <laughs> we know that it's more than you and I will ever have unless you're an oil baron sitting here in your Sadly not. office. Um, <laughs> that on a daily basis, every time I've worked with him, he has, I've said, please, JJ, can you just pinch my shoulder to know that I'm actually here and I'm in Star Wars for day before I get cut out of the movie or whatever happens. And he is as excited from day one when we began shooting on the 1st of August as every time I've intermittently seen him because mm. even though he's directed the before and he's had such incredible success in his life, and still is 10 years younger than me. He, he is as wide-eyed in Babylon about it all as I certainly feel. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's very endearing because it's, it's very easy to be cynical and to go, you know, you understand the business side of it and how... I remember the first time I ever worked in L.A. in 1988 where I think in the first three days... I, 
the amount of people that said, we're so excited, we're so excited. And I realized they said the same thing about a donut. That it wasn't particularly <laughs> It's now me. meaningless. You've rendered it yeah. meaningless. Yeah, so I've sort of since taken that praise. And I think most actors, you, you, a lot of actors I know can quote verbatim the worst reviews they've ever had, whereas the good ones... I don't know. I don't know anybody that believes them. You know, I was in a supermarket, the equivalent of Whole Foods or whatever in England, and an elderly woman was pushing a trolley and came came up to me. And because I'm tall, I thought, oh, she's going to ask me to, you know, pull down the Kellogg's cornflakes for her from the top shelf or something. And she said, are you Richard E. Grant? And I said, yes. She said, yes, I don't like you. Oh, no. Kind of <laughs> fucked off. And I stood there thinking, what have I done to deserve this? So, you, you know, you have no idea what's coming at you. Wow. Is the point. Um, I, 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 fear not, I'm not going to try and get any Star Wars spoilers out of you. I know you're under lock and key on that. Well, you know what character I'm playing. I'm playing the part of... Wait, your audio just dropped out. Richard? Yes. How does that happen where the audio drops out in person in front of me? It just did. And <laughs> the plot that I play, the plot line that I have mm. is... It goes... Oh, no. Here we go again. <laughs> You're just going to have to fire your sound editor. Exactly. That's okay. me, I think. I'm yeah. firing myself. So my question, though, is... Wait, do I have this right? Did you not even know you were up for a Star Wars movie when you kind of, like, put yourself out there for this? I got sent a ten-page generic... sort of. I think it was an interrogation scene from a clearly a 1940s British B-picture because the references were not Star Wars <laughs> and the, the language was something that my grandfather would have spoken in. And I, I thought, you know, there were three, three contrasting scenes that you were supposed to show as much versatility as you could muster in a self-taping situation. So I did that and sent it off. You know, it goes into cyberspace and you don't even think about it again because it's what actors, you know, at my level do all the time. You audition and you send stuff out and you never hear. Um, and then I got a call from my agent saying, oh, will you, um, will you go to Pinewood Studios and they're going to send a car to pick you up? And I thought... Why that that's never happened to me before. A car to go and have a meeting. So they did, and I got there and the casting director, Nina Gold, who'd got me in there in the first place, was very smiley and she said, Oh, you're you're gonna I said, What am I here for? What am I I don't have any scenes to prepare, I've not been told. She said, No, don't worry about that. So I went in and JJ was sitting with Daisy Daisy Ridley. Um and said, hey, you know, great, you come in. So are you going to do it? And I said, do what? Where am I? What's happening? And then happening? he described, and at this point the room went upside down, and I'm sure he was telling me in detail what part I was playing, what the character was called. I have no memory of that whatsoever. I just kept thinking, Fuck, I'm in, I'm, I might be in Star Wars. So I kept waiting for him to say, well, you're going to come in and stand in for somebody else because we need somebody to test who's your height or your age or whatever. But no, he, he kept saying... So, this is for uh, Donald Sutherland. We're going to get again. Exactly. exactly. He said, you are going to do this, are you? And I said, of course I'm going to do this. So um, that's what happened. Amazing. And I still didn't really believe that it was going to happen. And it still might not, you know, I know the vagaries, such as my paranoia, that you can, you can shoot stuff and then be cut out of it. Has that happened to you? Uh, there's always a first time. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's always the like, first time. <laughs> We're not going to drink you today. How do you do all this without having a list of questions in front of you? Well, because I'm a fan. Because I know this stuff. This okay. is, I'm not pretending. Well, no, well, that's, that's astonishing. And, and the earwig. I have this little thing. Oh, it's listen, the old Marlon Brando Andy. thing. All oh, right. You're Robert Downey Jr. You're being fed information. <laughs> and I'm being told... That's an And I'm being told to let you go back into the wild, sadly. Oh, okay. Um... I, I, as you can tell, I'm such oh, you a... You do have an earpiece. No, I don't. That's oh, just, I see. That's my old man hair probably coming out. Oh, right. Okay. Um, How old are you? For, 42. 42, right. Yeah. Okay. Still got all your hair and teeth. 
Astonishingly, <laughs> not a gray hair in sight. I'll show you the dentures afterwards. Oh, okay. Um, this has been such a delight. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with my uh, silly Hudson Hawk talk. Well, thank you for putting up with my career that has like <laughs> <laughs> Hudson Hawk within them. <laughs> um, thankfully, um, the reason you came in today, again, worthwhile. Uh, can you ever forgive me? Uh, I can't uh, enthusiastically endorse this movie enough. It's just a delight. Thank Your you. performance is wonderful, as is Melissa's, of course, the whole ensemble. Um, check it out. And I know this is a silly time of year where we talk awards and stuff, but I'm, I'm hoping I see you on the silly circuit uh, as we continue. It's a, it's a film that, that is worthy of recognition and certainly uh, your performances as well. I'll shake your hand on that. All right. Good to see you, buddy. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha <laughs> ha